is Sit Rep on BFBS with Kate Jabot. Iraq, 10 years on, was Britain right to go to war? We hear from the Prime Minister at the time, Tony Blair, also the Vicar of Baghdad and Colonel Tim Collins. The reality is that had we not carried out that invasion, um, Saddam's regime would have fallen along with all the others in the, um, in the Arab Spring of 2010. Ten years ago this week, the Iraqi capital Baghdad was being shaken by bomb blasts as the American-led coalition had begun the shock and awe bombardment to overthrow Saddam Hussein. In a little while, we'll hear from the former Prime Minister Tony Blair. BFBS defence analyst Christopher Lee is here as usual. Hello, Christopher. But before all that, let's hear from Colonel Tim Collins, who led British soldiers during the ground invasion as commanding officer of the 1st Battalion, the Royal Irish Regiment. His eve of battle address called on his men to be liberators who were magnanimous in victory. It made headlines around the world. He gave me his assessment of what followed the fighting. It was a shambles, there's no doubt about it. Um, in the UK, um, I'd, it'll take another 15, 20 years before the, the UK is aware of the depth of its defeat. But the recent uh, SIGER report, the Inspector General of the United States, has have said that by and large the 16 billion uh, dollars that were pumped into the rebuilding of Iraq were misplaced and the recognition is it, it wasn't a good job at all. You talk about the extent of the UK's defeat, what do you mean by that? Well the UK was comprehensively defeated at every level um, in Iraq um, the, the, um, the, the, the Mahdi army imposed its will on uh, the British army in Alamara in Al Qurna and in Basra itself and when the British army finally crept out of um, uh, Basra, its tail between its legs, um, by the grace of the Mahdi army, it was, a, it was the low point. But I was working at that time with US Marine Corps in the United States, and even then, plans were in place to put the Iraqi army backed by the Marine Corps in place. And that's what happened, and it was the, the Iraqi army that kicked the Mahdi army out of Basra. And as they left, one of them sprayed on a, a wall over one of the canals, we'll be back, and someone from the Iraqi army sprayed below it, and we'll be waiting. They haven't come back. Do you believe Iraq is a better place today as a result of the invasion? Uh, probably not. I mean, the reality is that had we not carried out that invasion, um, Saddam's regime would have fallen along with all the others in the, um, in the Arab Spring of 2010. Um, the um, many lives have been lost, probably something of the order of 100,000 Iraqi lives, um, which uh, were lost needlessly. On the other hand, um, there's no doubt Saddam's was a brutal regime. But I think that um, had we stopped to consider it ourselves, the United States, looked at the conditions that were set in the first Gulf War, which I took part in, uh, which was a unanimous international agreement for achievable and, and defined ends, then we'd have had a better opportunity to succeed. But this was a war that went off. Nobody knew why. And to this day, people are still wondering why it ever happened. When you look back now, how do you feel about the part that you played in the war in Iraq? The Royal Irish was very successful in terms of what we set out to do. We were lucky in that, for whatever reason, we were chosen 
to lead the advance of uh, frequently. Um, we um, and, and spearheaded the, the, the advance of 16 Hour Assault Brigade from the oil fields in Ramila, taking the Garden of Eden and Alcurna and Al Medina. And then we were again chosen to go and take Alcurna, which we did without, uh, Alamara, beg your pardon, which we did without firing a shot. Having taken Alamara, I used to walk around there on my own with a translator, not even armed. Somehow, through some planning of some mistakes, it, by the next few months, it became the most violent place on earth. Um, someone from the PWRR, John Spahari, won a Victoria Cross there. We've got to ask ourselves, how did we get it so badly wrong? Are you proud of what you achieved there? I'm proud that I brought all my young men home. How concerned are you that the situation in Syria may spill over to, into Iraq and that there may be civil war between Shia and Sunni communities? Well, I think that, that to a certain extent there is an inevitability about that. Um, you think there will be civil war in Iraq? Well, without getting involved in a whole history lesson, the problem is that um, the, the, the British government and certainly our high command are unaware of the history of the region. And had they uh, opened a book and read about it, they would understand that the borders that, create, uh, that we've created to define Syria, Jordan and Iraq were written, written by people who had no real understanding. The Sykes, so-called Sykes-Picot line, which divided the area of um, British um, influence from the area of French influence after the First World War was an arbitrary line and a fracture across tribal boundaries. It's, it's those lines, those straight lines drawn by Europeans that um, to a certain extent um, frame the, the problem but by no means control it. That was Colonel Tim Collins, who was the commanding officer of the 1st Battalion, the Royal Irish Regiments, during the invasion of Iraq. Well, BFBS defence analyst Christopher Lee was listening to that interview and joins me as ever in the studio. Christopher, do you agree with Tim Collins that the UK was comprehensively, as he said, defeated at every level in Iraq? Not comprehensively, because there were some remarkably good operations that went on. But by and large, the British uh, part in that war did not go well, and it didn't go well before the war even started. Um, there are, especially, you know, where we were, Basra, etc., handing over effectively to the militia to run the thing for us. It's something else which is I mean, particularly uh, important. Uh, he talks about the Arab Spring and that uh, Saddam would have fallen in that, possibly. But the truth is, uh, Saddam would have gone the way, perhaps, of al-Assad next in in. In, in Syria. Uh, Saddam was organised militarily. The other countries have not been organised militarily. He did point to a lack of understanding of the region, a lack of clear achievable objectives and Iraq probably not being much better off than under Saddam Hussein. What has been learned from the intervention in Iraq? Probably nothing at all except don't intervene. There's another thing and you get this sort of query over Syria, the fact that you can't go into Syria um, because there's actually no solution to Syria as it stands at the moment. But the important thing is to remember, at the moment, we've got 300, about 300 people being killed every single month by Sunni attacks on the shares, and that was the basic thing. A minority Sunni were controlling a majority uh, Shia, 
um, and that is being turned around now. The Sunnis are retaliating. You've got the same sort of thing that's going on in Syria and eventually, of course, the same thing that's going on in Iran. Well, as you say, a decade on, Baghdad has again been shaken by explosions, this time sectarian attacks, what many people believe to be the legacy of the coalition invasion. Canon Andrew White is the vicar of St George's Church in Baghdad, who's lived through the war and the subsequent violence. I began by asking him what it was like living in Baghdad as the military action began. Well, you've got two very clear things here. You have to remember what it was like before the bombing and as the bombing started. Before the bombing, obviously the infrastructure was semi there. You could walk down the streets. Then the invasion came. The fear disappeared because Saddam had gone. And that had a major instant positive effect on everybody apart from the most adamant Ba'athists. Before people were fearful of Saddam, to this very day, they are fearful of the number of massacres and explosions which happen not just occasionally, but all the time. On balance, then, what is life like for Iraqi people today, better or worse than under Saddam Hussein? Oh, there's no comparison at all. What people are living in now is hell. I cannot just walk down a street. I have hordes of soldiers and police around me providing protection. And I'm protected, but the majority of people are not protected. And so life, there is still huge unemployment, no proper infrastructure. The electricity still is not working more than six hours a day. So life is considerably worse than it used to be. And I'm one of the people who was totally behind removing Saddam and going to war against Iraq. So do you think you were right? I think I was right. But I think where we were wrong was in the follow-up. Yes, something drastic had to happen. But there was no real plan for the follow-up in Iraq after the war. And so we have seen a total demise of the country. And one of the big things that we failed in was serious engagement with the religious leaders. I can remember speaking to the Americans and the ambassadors saying to me, oh, we don't need to worry about religion now. Let's sort out water and electricity first. Then a few weeks later, he came back to me and said, I can't even sort out water and electricity because religion keeps getting in the way. Ten years on, people often talk of the legacy of the war. What was the legacy for the people of Iraq, in your view? The legacy of the war to the masses in Iraq is now they live in total destruction with 
continuous violence and with very little hope for the future. That was Canon Andrew White, the vicar of St George's Church in Baghdad. Well, let's now talk to the man who made the decision to go to war, the then Prime Minister, Tony Blair, who is the current quartet representative to the Middle East, and he joins me now on the line. Tony Blair, thank you very much for your time today. Hello. At this 10-year anniversary, a time to take stock with the benefit of hindsight. Should any aspect of the invasion have been conducted differently? I don't think you, you would ever get a situation in which you took military action like this and then didn't, in retrospect, 10 years later, say you could have done this differently or that differently. But I think the essential decision remains the same. Is the world safer and better without Saddam Hussein in office or, or leaving him there? And I personally, especially as I look at the Middle East today, um, believe that it was still right to remove him, that British troops played a, an important, um, indeed heroic, part in removing him and even though Iraq still has immense trouble and problem and challenges today it is a better place than it was and it no longer threatens the region in the way that it did when he was in charge and yet Iraq is still being torn apart by violence you must have hoped for more well of course what what we hoped for was that once we removed the dictator gave a democratic process in place and helped the country then the country would get behind that. And by and large, by the way, the majority of people did. And so always what I say to people is it's very important to realize why we faced a problem. We faced a problem in Iraq for the same reason that we face the problem in Afghanistan, for the same reason, by the way, that French forces are now facing the same type of problem in Mali. And that is we're up against a group of people that are supported on the one hand by Iran, on the other hand by um, organizations like al-Qaeda and their affiliates, who are prepared to kill and prepared to die and prepared to inflict damage on a country and its people uh, without limit. Now, in those circumstances, it's always going to be very tough. But the alternative, which is either to let them do it or keep the dictator in charge, and in this case, you know, Saddam, worse than any of the people that we're now rejoicing that we got rid of in the region, um, the alternative, in my view, would be far worse. Let's talk about the troops. Families still feel very raw about the loss of life and the way troops were sent in under-equipped. Did your military advisers ever tell you they needed more time? No, it, it really wasn't an issue of time. There's, there's, there's not a, a military um, action that you take like this in which there aren't risks and perils. But, you know, we are incredibly lucky in Britain that we've got armed forces that are prepared to go in and do combat. There aren't many armed forces left that are prepared to do that. And we are prepared to do that. Now, tragically... Do you regret, though, the way they were sent in, though, under-equipped? Well, let me just tell you from the political point of view, because I know there's huge debates about whether they were properly equipped or not properly equipped. I made it absolutely clear from the very outset that there was no financial problem about equipment. In other words, it wasn't that... Um, military people were going to come to us and say, look, we need this equipment or um, we we need this and we need it urgently and we were going to say, well, I'm sorry, we can't afford it or you can't have it. So so far as the political side was concerned, if the military people made a request, it was granted. Now, you will also, by the way, find a lot of those that were responsible for the decisions in the military at the time saying, no, we did did go in properly equipped. Um, And, you know, in the end, 
Okay, this is a really important thing. We didn't, you see, people always want to look for a reason that is a, a reason that is easy in a way. It, it, it could be under equipment or it could be that, um, you know, we didn't do the proper planning or it could be that um, we debarsify too fast or the issue to do with the disbandment of the army. All of these are issues, but the fundamental reason we faced a, a, a deep and difficult fight in Iraq is the same reason we faced it in Afghanistan. We're up against an enemy that is prepared to use terrorism, suicide bombing, and to kill people. Now, in those circumstances, whatever planning you do and whatever equipment you have, you're going to be in a fight in the end. Of course, the situation in Iraq highlights the very grave difficulties in bringing peace to the region. Turning to Syria, if, if we may, was and is Britain's strategy the right strategy? Well, look, I think Britain on its own can't resolve Syria, and I actually think the Prime Minister, within the bounds of, of what the international consensus is, is, is doing what he can. But, but Syria is, is very important in the context of Iraq. What's happening in Syria today is the country's disintegrating. I mean, we are already, the death toll is well over 70,000. If this carries on a few more months, then proportionate to the population, there will have been as many, if not more, people killed in Syria than were killed in the whole of Iraq in the 10 years. Do you think that Britain should be arming the opposition? I've always said I think there is a case for that, and I certainly think there is a case for trying to create havens or zones of, of, of immunity for the um, Syrian opposition. Otherwise, what, what, what is happening literally day in, day out, which is not the same focus on it as probably there should be, is that civilians are losing their lives. Um, Assad is using very heavy weaponry. And the problem is the opposition is being armed. This is the, the thing people have to understand. The Syrian opposition is being armed, but the part of it that's being armed is, let us say, probably the part that is going to be hardest to deal with afterwards. So we're now, in a, I'm afraid, in a very, very difficult situation um, where even if Assad goes, we're, in a, we're, we're, we're left with a huge amount of doubt and uncertainty as to the future. Now, in the end, he's going to have to go, and I hope he goes without too much more loss of life. But there is a real risk with Syria that it descends into a civil war that could last many, many years. And as the quartet representative to the Middle East, what are you telling President Obama at the start of his new presidency and on his first visit to Israel as to how he should handle the Israeli-Palestinian problem and specifically the illegal building of settlements by Israel? Well, my advice has been the same all the way through, which is that the only way of resolving this is you've got to have a credible negotiation with a proper set of terms of reference laid down for that negotiation and you have to match the politics with change on the ground in the economy and the living standards of Palestinians and the belief of the Israelis in security and settlements are a problem um, but the only way of resolving the settlement issue ultimately is to get into a negotiation and resolve the border issue. And what do you see in your current position as emerging as the greatest threat, threat to world peace? Well, in that region, it's a combination of uh, disintegrating Syria and, and, and Iran, frankly. I mean, look, the region's not really changed. What, what's happened is that a whole set of forces that have been building up in the region for a long time. And, you know, we, we, we went through this in the 80s. I mean, we had the Iran-Iraq war, um, the use of chemical weapons in that war. I mean, people forget this sometimes. There were 500,000 people killed in that war. Um, and out of it, by the way, came... The, the birth of the Iranian nuclear program. 
Um, but the, the rise of extremism, um, the rise of, of uh, political parties based on a, a belief, as they say, that Islam is the answer, these things have been building and building in this region. And I don't think you can really look at the region today unless you look at it as a whole. So there's Iran and its nuclear ambitions and the fact that it's exporting terrorism around the region. You've got then countries that have thrown off dictatorships, and there they need to be able to, to, to gain stability and build their economy. And to do that, they've got to fight the extremists. And then the third thing you need is where there's not been that revolution, you're going to need a steady process of evolution because the status quo is not sustainable. Um, and I think you can say that about the Middle East, and you can now say that about broader than the Middle East, going into, you know, Iran, obviously, um, you see the problems you have in Pakistan, some in Central Asia, and then we have North Africa. And so, you know, my view has always been, um, I think, different from the conventional wisdom on this. I think we're in a, a, a long generational struggle against these forces of extremism. I think that is the actual reason we got into the problems we got into in Iraq. And my view is you've got to, to deal with them, be prepared to confront them. Um, you're not always going to be fighting them, although where they fight you, you should be prepared to fight back. But you have to deal with it, and you can't, as many people in the West now want to do, simply opt out, disengage, and believe the problem will resolve itself. Okay. If we may just return to Iraq, given the anniversary, on a purely personal note, forget the rights and wrongs and what you've said, because we know your point of view on this. But given that to a large proportion of the British public, they will think of you, a highly successful prime minister, as the guy who took us to the wrong war. If that's your legacy, that must be quite difficult for you to live with. Well, it's not. I always say this to people. It's not about me as a person. And by but the way, personally, you must you know, have a feeling about it. But my feeling about it is that when you're elected as prime minister, and I said this at the time, and I still say it to people, you're elected, in the end, your ultimate obligation is to do what you believe is right. That is your ultimate obligation. Now, people can disagree with the decision. That's fine. They shouldn't ever misunderstand that I believed it to be right, and I believe it to be right still, by the way. And the reasons why it is actually better to trust a politician, in fact, when they're doing something that is unpopular than doing something that is easy... Now, this was the hardest decision, the most balanced decision I ever took. But I came to the view when I looked at all the different aspects of it, that in the end, it was better that we were with America in removing Saddam because I felt and believed the world would be safer without him. Now, in the end, as I say, you, you can, someone else can say, I totally disagree with that. Um, but it's not about me as a person or what I feel about it personally. It's about your ultimate obligation when you're prime minister on an issue like this is not to look at the opinion polls or even the number of people that march on the street. It's to take the decision and take it in the way that you believe to be right. Now, if you do that, then you've fulfilled your duty. If, if what you've done is take a decision that may be politically convenient but is not really what you believe, that, in my view, is when you truly breach your duty. Tony Blair, thank you very much for your time today. Christopher, um, what do you make of what you heard there? We don't hear anything that we would be surprised about. But what I think, there is a link here, isn't there? Um, Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, all have one theme which Tony Blair sort of touches upon. It's what you do after the war that's important. Iraq, we should have stayed on longer, or the coalition should have stayed on more, uh, longer, 
to bring some sort of security system to separate the Shia, Sunni, etc. His fear about Syria, we don't know what happens when Assad, if he does go, goes. Afghanistan, where we're involved for 10 years at the same time, we don't know what happens after the war. And it's this intensity of politicians sending you into war and then saying, my God, we better get out now. And so you pull out and you leave nothing but the possibility that it reverts to type and crisis and tragedy, as we saw in Iraq and we could see in Afghanistan. Let's move to Cyprus now, because Cyprus has four days to agree on a new plan for an EU bailout. The European Central Bank has warned it will pull the plug on the country's banks at the start of next week if no bailout deal is agreed. Forces personnel serving on the island still have access to cash and measures have been put in place to keep money flowing, but the effects are starting to be felt. BFBS reporter in Cyprus, Carla Prater, joins us from our studio at RAF Akrotiri. Uh, Carla, what's it like on the base? at the moment? Well, what a week is all I can say. At the British Forces Post Office, they've started restricting the cash facility. Personnel can only get one €200 withdrawal per household a week. And in some of the shops, they're low on coins. With the bank shut all week, no one has any petty cash. So they're urging people to use coins where possible. Petrol stations are requiring payments in cash also. And I've been told the majority have stopped accepting cards altogether. British Forces Cyprus have been making planning measures to deal with this changing situation. On Tuesday night, the Treasury flew in €1 million Euro into Akrotiri on the routine trooper flight. I watched that money being unloaded. It's been brought in as a contingency in case cash machines or cards stop working people who need financial help are being told to contact their chain of command. And Carla, how is it going down? How are the military taking it? Is there an air of panic or are they taking it all in their stride? Well, today there's an air of uncertainty, but also resignation. People are trying to get on with business as usual. Most people are trying to access what cash they have, and many on and off camp are emptying their accounts because they just don't have faith in the banking system returning to normal right now. The British government have already made assurances that all personnel, UK-posted civilians and their dependents, will be protected. But no one knows when they'll get access to their savings. If they're buying a property, a car, trying to set up life here or for posting elsewhere, their savings in Cyprus are frozen. All payments into Cyprus banks have been suspended. Military personnel have until tomorrow midday to state which bank they want their March salary to be paid into. Commanders here are also looking at ways to pay locally employed Cypriots. All right, Carla, Toriaf, Akrotiri in Cyprus, thank you for that. Uh, Christopher, let's talk about Russia. They have a close relationship with Cyprus, don't they? What can they do? Um, well, they can do a heck of a lot because they've, they've got, and they need to do a lot, there's 31 billion uh, US dollars worth of investment in, in Russian investment in Cyprus. There's about 40 billion in loans to Cypriot businesses. Um, I was talking to a guy, a, a guy called uh, Sergei Kupriyanov's uh, office uh, yesterday. Now, that's Gazprom, the gas company of Russia, right? They have been talking about, at Gazprom itself, not in Cyprus, about buying the Likey Bank. Now, this is not new, unusual sort of thing to do. Russians are doing this just as the Chinese are doing this hmm. sort of thing. And that is the importance of it. And what is particularly important is that, uh, is that Michael Saris, who is the, the Cypriot uh, finance minister, and Anton uh, Silinanov, the, the Russian uh, uh, finance minister, they've got to sort out what Russia can do and what Russia wants in return. Does it want, for example, the 211, 2011 investment opportunities in offshore gas, for example? Uh, and briefly before we go, this week. Um, 
big developments or announcements at least at the top of the British military this week. General Sir Nicholas Horton has been appointed as the new Chief of the Defence Staff. Christopher, um, tell us a bit more about him and what he's got to do. First and foremost, he is a Whitehall warrior. He actually understands how the system works. He also understands how the army works at land, for example. What he has to do as a purple officer, i.e. tri-service, is take the British Armed Forces towards, he won't be there then, but towards 2020, which is the most crucial, crucial part in the future of the British Forces. His enemies will not be in Whitehall, except across the other side, and that is in the Treasury, because that, where he can absolutely get a fanging and end up in the clag, and that's why he needs his Secretary of State, uh, State alongside him, who will fight for him in cabinet, in cabinet, and that is the double act we're going to see, Secretary of State and CDS. So, going towards 2020, what are the pressing things he has to deal with? He has to be with budget. What can I do with the budget? And what he has to do is to say to the government, please tell me what sort of things that you want us to do in the future, and I'll be able to tell you if we can do them. And just before the Iraq war, as we heard from the then defense, uh, chief of the defense staff, he said, I can go to war, but I can't drive your fire engines at the same time. One task, at, and it's one task only now. Well, that's all we have time for this week. My thanks to our defence analyst, Christopher Lee. If you'd like to join the debate, we're on Twitter and you can tweet us at BFBS Sitrep. Remember, you can listen again to this week's programme on our website, bfbs.com slash sitrep. We'll be back at the same time next week, but for now, from me, Kate Jabot, thanks for listening. Bye-bye for now. <laughs>